Good morning, church. Good to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel today. I'm Greg Paris. We're so thrilled you're here. And uh, we've got a great team of people, don't we? Great staff doing a great job. So we appreciate all the work they do. Been talking about grace these past few weeks. Let me just uh, rehearse a story. Years ago, my favorite Christian author, C.S. Lewis, was in a conference where there was a panel of leading religious leaders from the major religions of the world assembled, and they were debating and rehearsing those particular faiths. So you had a representative of Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Islamic faith, and Jewish faith, and then you had Mr. Lewis representing Christianity. And he had to leave the room briefly And when he returned to the room, the moderator reminded him that they were in a conversation at that point about what makes their religion unique among all the other religions of the world. And C.S. Lewis heard that question, and as he was sitting down on the panel, he, he simply said, oh, that's easy with regard to what makes Christianity unique. He said, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. All the other world religions, in fact, all, every religion in history has had a sense of oughtness about it. I ought to do better. I ought to be better. I ought to try harder. I should perform more effectively and fulfill the rules and regulations and the rituals. And, of course, Christianity comes along and Jesus said, I have a new covenant with you, a brand new covenant, a covenant that comes through my very life. That once and for all, you can be forgiven of your sins. Your sins can be atoned for by simply accepting a gift that I offer to you, the gift of myself, of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. It's wonderful grace. It's it's astonishing grace. The unmerited favor, the undeserved favor of God, a gift of God to us, not as a result of our goodness or our good works. You ask You ask the typical Jewish person in the world today, how do you know your sins are atoned for? And the most common teaching today among Jews around the world is, well, in order to be atoned for because no longer are the animal sacrifices being given. So I'm atoned as a Jewish person by my prayers, by my sincere repentance, and by my good works. Somehow my prayers, my sincerity in confessing my sins and the good things that I do somehow start balancing the scales and tipping the scales in my favor. Again, a sense of oughtness, and it will never work. That's why God made a wonderful offer to us through his son, Jesus Christ, the gift of grace that our sins might be forgiven and our relationship restored with him. We're in the redemption business, and this is the means by which God has redeemed us. Uh, that's a free sermon before the sermon. And so if you don't get the, the other sermon, you've gotten that one. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to uh, turn to Matthew chapter 18. This is Jesus now responding to a question that Peter made to him about forgiving others, extending grace to others. Now, we've been talking about how you receive grace, what grace is and how we experience it in our lives personally. Now we're going to flip the coin today And ask the question, how can we extend grace? We've received this grace. How then do we give it away? And this story will help us. Matthew 18, I'm going to read verses 21 to 35. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Thank you for doing that as you're able. 
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. <laughs> Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You have heard the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks so much. The promise of these weeks of this series on grace is simply this, that grace is greater than anything that you can imagine. Whatever, whatever sins you've committed, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever failures you carry, whatever regrets you keep at night, the secrets that no one knows about but you, all of that and anything else you can imagine, we come to this simple equation that grace is greater than that. Grace is greater. Uh, look at the screen at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. It says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Wherever sin is present and all of, its, all of its consequences, all of its dysfunction, all the way to death, where sin has, leaves its ugly trail, grace much more abounds. Love it, love it. Today we're going to flip the coin over, as I mentioned. We're going to talk about messy grace. Because <laughs> when you're on the receiving end of grace, that's all good. Wonderful, exciting, gratifying, fun. When God's grace becomes evident in our lives, his saving grace, his sustaining grace, his healing grace, his empowering grace, and ultimately when we die and we stand before Jesus, his glorifying grace, we are products of the amazing grace of God. And when we are on the receiving end of that grace, it's all wonderful. But now if we flip it and we are asked to extend that same grace, we've received it now God asks us to give it away, that becomes more challenging. But talking about it is easy, isn't it? So I, yeah, I understand I've received grace and I should be willing to give it away so long as we're not talking about that father who berated me or that spouse who cheated on me or that boss who fired me or the coworker who stabbed me in the back or that relative who abused me 
Look at this verse on the screen, Proverbs 14, 10. Every heart knows its own bitterness. That's true, isn't it? We all know. We all remember. We've all experienced it. Everyone's been wounded. We've all been hurt. We all carry burdens, sometimes from years and years ago, burdens from our past. All these sins have been committed against us, and we remember them. We remember when we were betrayed or abandoned or abused or victimized or ignored or rejected or embarrassed or bullied. And now the subject of grace gets a lot messier, doesn't it? Becomes more difficult. Matthew 18 is a narrative, a story that Jesus told to Peter and whoever else was there to listen about an unmerciful servant. What we learn from this amazing story is that grace only works if it goes both ways. Not only to receive it, but also to give it. Could be that to the extent that we're willing to give grace, it may reveal the extent to which we've actually received grace. Could be that if we are unwilling to extend grace, that the problem is that we haven't really received grace. So we want to look at these uh, verses of the story and just see what we can learn about extending grace. I hope it's meaningful to you. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter thought that he was hedging pretty well. He's creating a lot of margin here. And the reason he thought that is because the rabbis of the day would teach that if someone offended you once, you should forgive them. If they, re, they offended you twice, you should ex, extend forgiveness. If they offended you, hurt you three times, you should forgive them. Fourth time, don't have to forgive them anymore. Three times. Get three chances and then forgiveness is done. And that was the common teaching of the day. So when Peter says, how often should we forgive? Seven times? <laughs> Knowing that he was more than twice going past the local rabbis. And Jesus responds to him and says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. So it blows his mind. Peter, Peter probably asked this question because there's probably a story behind, in, from his own life that has left him wounded. You can imagine a question like this must come from some kind of life experience, and it's likely that Peter had been offended or wounded by someone. Have you discovered with me that the people who tend to hurt you the most are the folks who are closest to you? People that you've given your heart to, people that you love, people that you trust. These are the folks who have the greatest potential to hurt us, isn't it? Maybe it was true in Peter's life that someone close to him had wounded him. And he's wondering how to respond to that. Where does, where does grace stop? At what point do we say that's too much? That's too hard. That's too deep. Maybe it's not a certain number of wounds, but it's the degree of an offense. How serious it was. How horrible it was. Perhaps even evil. Is there a limit to, to the grace of God? Is there a limit to which I'm expected to extend grace to someone who's done that kind of wounding to me? 
Many of us have learned in life because of the way people close to us wound us never to let people get close to us again because we know that by letting people in that close to our heart, we give them power. It's just a matter of time until someone hurts me again. And so we push people away. People live their entire lives unwilling to take the risk any longer to let someone else in that close. Maybe Peter was in that category. And Jesus reminds him that grace is always greater, no matter the level of the offense, no matter how grievous, grace is greater. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And we object to this. It's instinctual. It's hard for us emotionally to get our minds around it. You want to say, well, wait a minute. Before you tell me that grace is greater, let me tell you about my broken heart. Let me tell you about the betrayal in my life that happened to me. Let me tell you about the pain I've experienced and the injustice that I have experienced in my life. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said to Peter, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, he began the settlement. And a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, can you, can you hear the hyperbole here? I mean, 10,000 bags of gold. This is actually the equivalent of about $150 million. Uh, it was 10 times the national budget of Israel back in the day. In other words, it's hyperbole. This in, implies a debt that the man could never repay. So when Jesus says there was a king who wanted to settle accounts, a man owed him $150 million. Everyone listening to Jesus would go, well, can't pay that back. I mean, that's, that's an insurmountable debt. Too much, too great. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So this wasn't uncommon in these times for this kind of cruel treatment to be exercised against someone who's not paying up. And so the king goes, he's never going to be able to repay me everything he owes me. So I'll just take whatever assets he has, his wife, his kids, I'll sell them into slavery, all of his stuff, I'll sell that. And I'll, I'll just cut my losses and close the books on this account. Now, it's fairly clear that Jesus, at this point in the story, is, is communicating to us that this isn't merely an earthly example of a king and his servant or merely a person in your life who is trying to settle accounts with you. But Jesus, Jesus is, is using this hyperbolic example. I mean, the debt is so huge. You never repay it. He's reminding us that this is precisely the status that we find ourselves in relationship with God. The penalty of sin is so grievous, it's so great, it's so much that we can never repay it. And so we owe a debt to God that we can never repay. Now we pretend that that's not true. We, we rationalize it. We, we remind ourselves that, well, you know, look, compared to the next guy, I'm not as bad. And compared to my former self, I mean, a few years ago, you should have seen me then. I was a real mess. I started coming to church and got to know Jesus a little bit. I'm growing, you know, I'm doing better. Gosh, I'm doing a lot better than I was. And so please don't tell me that I owe, still owe God a, you know, an insurmountable amount of debt, but that's exactly the picture that the Bible paints for us. 
God is keeping track of everything that we do, every wrong. I mean, the teacher may not have known that you plagiarized that paper in college, but God saw it. Your husband may not know that you're flirting with that guy at the gym, but God sees it. You may think you've deleted all your internet history so no one would know, but God knows. You have that drinking problem and you, you have become expert at hiding it from everyone. Nobody knows about it, but God does. You may have the windows in your house closed so your neighbors can't hear you yelling at each other, but God hears you from heaven. Your boss may not know that you're embezzling money from the, from the company, but God sees it. And he knows right now about the pride that some of you have because I didn't just give an example that applied to you. He knows about all of that, and he keeps track of all of it. The Bible says that nothing in all of creation is hidden from his sight. Nothing. Does that... Does that little section there make anybody feel a little anxious? How about nauseous? You feel that? That someday God's going to pull up your account? Can we just say it out loud? Huge, huge debt. Can't pay it. No way. I'm in deep, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in deep hole. Can't get out. Can't get out. Verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, I'll pay back everything. Well, actually, no, he won't. It's ridiculous. There's no way for him to pay that back. There's no way for him to make it right. There's no way for him to get out of this. In and of himself, he's done. He's doomed. He's lost. He's hopeless. And Jesus reminds us that we are exactly the same. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him. Oh, a ray of light. <laughs> he canceled the debt and he let him go. Oh, you owe me 150 million? Let's not worry about that anymore. Not going to harm you or your family. Take your stuff, none of that stuff. Listen, uh, the, the debt's canceled completely, completely wiped clean. Not, not lowered, not reduced, not a different uh, payoff, not a different interest rate. It's just gone, completely gone. It was insurmountable, now it's empty. And you can go, you're free. Not only is your debt removed, you are free, free to go. Wow. Now this twist, verse 28. When the servant went out, he found out that one of his fellow servants owed him a hundred silver coins. This is about 20 bucks. 20 bucks. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now this guy who's been forgiven of 150 million now won't release the guy who owes him 20 bucks. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? It is exactly the phrase that he had just made to the king. 
Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, the other servants saw what had happened. Interesting that Jesus would interject this into the story. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. Now, this is something we shouldn't just pass over. They went and told their master everything that had happened. So Jesus said to the fellow servants, are the ones who reported him to the master. Now, why? Why do you suppose, why do you speculate that they were so upset? It could be that Jesus is trying to remind them in his story, in this narrative, that the king is actually a benevolent king. He is such a good king that he doesn't treat his servants like servants. In fact, he treats them like sons and daughters. And he doesn't withhold from them what they need. In fact, he makes sure that they have everything that they need and then some. And when one of them actually becomes indebted to the king, the king is so gracious, he's so benevolent that he forgives the debt. So now when another servant, a fellow servant, owes another servant 20 bucks and that servant who's been forgiven so much refuses to forgive his fellow servant of the $20, it makes the whole community upset. And we have something we can learn from this. They lived in community apparently. And, and, and so when we see our brothers and sisters who have received God's grace acting ungraciously, that should, that should be a problem for us. That should be an issue for us. We should take note of that. When we see someone who's received incredible grace start being judgmental to other people whose struggles are different than their own, we should, of course, be very distressed by that. Therefore, within this parable of grace, there's also a call for some righteous outrage. It comes in the context when a person that we know in the context of the community is becoming judgmental and condemning and gossiping about someone else who comes in and maybe looks different or struggles with something different. And the reason we should be upset with that and intolerant of that is because we all look different and we all struggle. Every last one of us. And how we treat our fellow servants in the context of community should be in the context of grace. Gracious. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. You wicked thing. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, how long is that torture going to last? $150 million worth of torture? An insurmountable um, amount of debt? You're going to take that out of his hide? Really? What is Jesus talking about here? He's not th talking about throwing some guy into a jail. He's talking, about, he's talking about the wrath of God. He's talking about a place the Bible calls hell. There are lots of places in the New Testament where Jesus is referring to this wrath of God and divine retribution, and it's, it's a bit vague, and we're not sure exactly what the implications are. Here, it is not vague at all. Here, it is explicit. It is completely straightforward. 
And, and I know that there's pushback about this because no one likes to even imagine there is such a place as hell, but Jesus was clearly teaching about a place called hell. In fact, we read the gospels and all of the red letters, you know, in the gospels that pertain to the words of Jesus. And that there is much more evidence in the gospels for a place called hell than there is a place called heaven. When all you do is measure the words of Jesus. It could be that Jesus was determined to help us realize that that, that we should desire to flee the wrath that is to come. That there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And we should get dead sober about that. There's immediate pushback on when anyone like me talks like this. So you tell me that if I don't forgive the person who hurt me, the person who abused me, the person who betrayed me, the person who cheated on me, the person who abandoned me, you're telling me if I don't forgive them that God won't forgive me? Is that what you're saying? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. The preexistent, co-eternal word of God, the word made flesh, Jesus, the Christ, he said it. You know, wake up. Jesus then says to us, look, I'll pay it off. I'll pay your debt. The, the debt can be completely removed, but don't just receive grace from me. You also need to extend it to others. The wonderful, amazing, abundant, complete, more than enough, abounding grace of God is sufficient for every wrong you've ever done. Jesus said, look, I'm, I'll pay that. I'll pay your debt, however great it might be. I'll, I'll wipe your slate clean. I'll completely empty your account, indebted to me, and set you free. Here's just a condition. Extend grace to others. As you've received this grace, give it away as well. You can hold on to your grudge. You can hold on to your bitterness. You can hold on to your resentment. You say, well, people, listen, that person owes me something. They owe me an explanation. They owe me an apology at least. You know, if, if they'll apologize to me, then, then I will extend grace to them. No, no, wait. You can hold on to resentment, to hurt, to hatred. You can say, they, they owe me. They owe me that apology. They owe me my childhood. They took that from me. They owe me a marriage. They owe me money. But forgiving them, you understand, that's grace. That's grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved. Here's the equation. What you've been forgiven of is a lot greater than what you'll ever have to forgive. That's the equation. Are you hearing it? If it, and if this equation doesn't make sense to you, if you don't believe that, if, if what you have received in grace is enormously greater than what God asks you to extend in grace, if you don't get that, then probably you don't really understand the gospel and you probably really don't understand yourself. Look at this quote from John LaRoe. Look at it. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. The Apostle Paul described himself this way. He said, I am the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul, he said, now think about all the sinners in the whole wide world. I'm the worst. 
I'm the worst. He said, look, I know myself. I know what's in me. I know my tendencies. I know my impulses. I, I know me. I have to be the worst sinner in the world. That's an accurate perspective. Look at Colossians 3.13 on the screen. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, some of you are holding your smartphone right now and you have the app open and you're looking at the outline. Here are three quick points. Here's the first one. Grace is greater than repayment. It's greater than repayment. So when you wait for an explanation or you wait for an apology from the person who offended you, when they make it right with me, I will extend grace to them. No, no, that's repaying someone. Grace is greater than that. Here's number two. Grace is greater than revenge. This is I'm going to hurt the person the way they've they, they have hurt me. Someone said that's like sitting in God's chair. Here's something that we need to remember about people who have hurt us and wounded us. We don't know who hurt them. We don't know the wounds that they have in their life. We don't know their whole story. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. It's true. And you don't know their story. You don't know what's happened to them. And neither do you know what God has in store in his redemptive grace in their life. You don't know how God is going to work in their heart to reshape their lives. And so when you take a position of revenge, you assume, you presume on the goodness of God, the grace of God. So grace is greater than Revenge. Romans 12 says, don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. I love that verse. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. In other words, God's going to sort it all out in the end. I have probably said over a hundred times in the context of my career in pastoral ministry, two people who have confronted me, challenged me, wanted to attack me, and wanted, wanted, wanted to go. I don't know how many times I've, I've used these words, but I have said many times, we will let God judge between you and me on this subject. We are, we are in disagreement about this. We'll let God judge between us. And one of these days, and the implication is one of these days, either I'll have to apologize to you or you'll have to apologize to me. Because <laughs> we both can't be right. So we'll let God judge. And that's why Romans 12 says, don't take revenge. Don't do that. That's not gracious. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Let God manage that whole process. It's not up to us to balance the scales. Let God do that. We say it's not fair. I know it's not fair. They don't deserve it. I know. That's the point, isn't it? <laughs> They don't deserve it, just like you don't deserve God's grace toward that big debt you have with him. So it doesn't mean you're not going to hurt. Grace doesn't mean that you won't feel the pain anymore. In some ways, grace means that you're choosing to live with the pain and the consequences of another person's sins. That's grace. So grace is greater than repayment. It's greater than revenge. And thirdly and lastly, it's greater than resentment. You know, I, I'm, I'm just going to quietly, quietly become more and more angry 
more and more resentful, more and more hurt, more and more bitter. I, re, I can replay the whole season of my life. I can see their face. I can hear their words. I can remember what they did to me. And all I have to do is push play. And I can rehearse the whole thing over again. And I'll just keep doing that and let my bitterness and my anger and my resentment grow and grow and grow. I was taken advantage of. I was disrespected. I was mistreated. And I rehearse it. But listen, when you choose resentment, let me ask you the question, who ultimately pays for it? Someone defined resentment as drinking a bottle of poison and waiting for the other person to die. Not very effective. Matthew West is a songwriter, and one of the lyrics of his song goes like this. I'll put it on the screen. It's just right there. When you forgive the prisoner, that it really frees is you. When you forgive the prisoner that it really frees is you. One more statement will be done. Look at it on the screen. The key to giving grace, however hard it is, however messy it might be, is to stop thinking about what's been done to you and to start thinking about what Jesus has done for you. That's it. That's how you figure it out. That's how you come to terms with it. That's how you, you, you come to a place where you're willing to take action, to extend grace to the other person. When you stop thinking about what's been done to you and start thinking about what Jesus has done for you. It's hard, but it's better. Difficult, but it's better. Not easy, but it's better. It's not without pain, but it's better. Better than repayment, better than revenge, better than resentment. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. Amen? Let's pause and pray about these things. Now, would you, would you just go with me for a second? As I've been talking this morning, I know, I know, you've been rehearsing your own pain. Some of you have been made to feel at peace because you have made efforts in your life to extend grace to the person who wounded you. And so this sermon has been reassuring and hopeful. Others of us, we still have the pain. We still carry the wound. And we wonder if grace is greater than our wounds. And so what I'd like you to do right now is bring that person or persons right before you. Do you dare do it? Do you dare? I know it's hard. It's risky for you. It's scary. It's painful. Do you have them there? Lord, we know that it's impossible for us to extend grace to these people without your help. So we pray for your help right now. We know it's one thing to forgive some little offenses, some expected offenses. Maybe some of us are just a little too sensitive, maybe. But a lot of our hurts 
are grievous. And God, there are certain times in life where it's really painful and it was really wrong and it really hurts. So God, we need your perspective on this. Would you help us right now to understand what you've done for us through your son, Jesus? Would you remind us, help us to understand the pain and the suffering that our sin brought upon him? Would you allow that grace? And Lord, as we receive that perspective and as it sets us free, would you help us now that that grace would overflow and touch those who've hurt us, wounded us? Could we be then people identified and defined by grace? Could we be a community here in the life of our church marked by grace? Jesus, we love you and pray that we might demonstrate our understanding, our acceptance of your grace by the tangible expression of grace to others. Lord, help us. And as you do, this forgiveness will, this forgiveness will come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Would you stand with us?